Well, this fall, I'm preaching a sermon series that I've entitled Justice, looking at what the Bible has to say about justice and how we evaluate the cultural messages around us on justice. And each week, I've begun with three preliminary statements that I just want to repeat again this morning. First and foremost, this is not primarily a political sermon series. It's not a social science lecture. It is a message, hopefully, from God through his word to you. And so while it may touch on politics and social sciences, that's not my design this morning, and uh, hopefully we will instead stay in our lane here as God's church. Secondly, I know that in touching on justice, I'll be touching on issues that are controversial, uh, topics that you may agree or disagree with what I say. It's okay. If you don't agree with everything I say, I would just encourage you as the church to set the example of speaking the truth in love. Amen? That in the world, there are all kinds of people shouting at each other and not listening to each other. In the church, we are to set the example of speaking the truth in love. So if you feel like I've missed the boat in any way, if you feel like I could gain some more experience from what you've been through, anything that you have feedback, I am open to hearing that. Just speak the truth in love. And then thirdly, this is not about us wagging our finger at the culture. This is primarily about us holding up a mirror to ourselves as God's church to see how we are doing with doing justice, with following God's call on his church to do justice, okay? So it's not just about us telling the church, I'm sorry, telling the world, you know, how bad they are for not being like God. It's about us looking at ourselves in the mirror. So let me give a quick recap. We've done four weeks already. In the first week, I looked at God the creator and how we are created, designed beings and how that stands in contrast with much of our culture that is trying to promote the message that we are our own design, that we can self-create and self-design ourselves to be whoever we want, you know, that we're supposed to look inside and then give expression to that, and then everyone should affirm and applaud whatever it is we find on the inside. That instead, we find life to the fullest as we look to God who designed us and live according to his design for our lives. Second week, I looked at how we're all created in the image of God. Why do black lives matter? Why does any life matter? Because we are created in the image of God, not because we're evolved from animals, not because the laws say so, because we're created in God's image and we all have dignity. We're all to treat each other with that level of dignity. Thirdly, I looked at the fall and the concept of sin and how if you're trying to ask the question of what's wrong with the world, you have to begin there in sin and rebellion from God that has created brokenness in relationships with God, relationships with each other, relationships with nature, and that that's the main root issue that needs to be addressed more than just the symptoms you see around you. And then last week, I looked at how if you're going to talk about doing justice, you have to begin with the gospel of salvation by grace. If you just begin with doing works and going out there and working, you're going to burn yourself out very quickly because it's overwhelming, isn't it? The amount of justice, injustice out there, the number of justice issues to be addressed. I mean, that's just one right there you just heard of that's overwhelming. Multiply that by the thousands of other justice issues out there. It's overwhelming. You have to start with the foundation of salvation by grace that we're not going to be saved by our good works, what we do or do not do. We're saved by grace because we've all contributed to injustice. We're not neutral parties. We need forgiveness. We need cleansing. We need his Holy Spirit in us to empower us to do justice. So this morning, I want to begin with a question for you. What do you think would cause the God of the universe to cover his ears when we sing worship songs? What do you think would cause the God of the universe to yell, turn that music down? Is it that he doesn't like Hillsong songs? Is it that we're singing off key? And what would cause him to say, just stop coming to church and just go home, everybody? Don't bring your offerings. 
don't come here and sing, what would cause God to respond in that way to us? Is it the way we dress? Where we choose to sit? What would cause the God of the universe to respond like that? Well, let's read Amos 5, 21 to 24. God says this. I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. If you're unfamiliar with their name Amos, as many of us probably are, Amos was a prophet, Old Testament prophet. He was raised up by God near the end of the northern kingdom of Israel before Assyria, a foreign country, came and destroyed Israel in 722 B.C. And the the role of the prophets, if you're unfamiliar, it's not just they like tell the future, but way back when God brought the Israelites out of Egypt, out of slavery, he brought them to Mount Sinai, and at Mount Sinai he made a covenant. I'll be your God, you'll be my people. This is what it means to be my people. Don't kill each other, don't steal, don't lie, all those things. That's what it means to be my people. And if you do all these things, good things will happen to you. These blessings will happen. And if you don't do these things, bad things will happen to you. These curses will happen. And over time, whenever Israel was in danger of bringing the curses upon them by their bad behavior, God would raise up a prophet as his mouthpiece to come and tell the people, repent, turn from your sin, turn back to God. That's who Amos is. He's a prophet. Because the people of Israel are in danger of getting destroyed by Assyria. And so he comes and tells them, repent, turn away from your idolatry, from worshiping foreign gods, and turn away from your injustice. It's not about the music they're singing. It's not about their offerings. It's about their lack of justice. And so what I want to do this morning is just try to understand what justice and righteousness are, biblically speaking. I'm going to pay particular attention this morning to the Old Testament. We'll look at the New Testament next week, but I want to particularly focus on the Old Testament because up to now I haven't even defined justice. I've just been using the word without defining it. But this morning I want to look at what the Bible says about what justice and righteousness are because these are the words that he says, that's why I don't, I don't want to listen to your songs. I don't care about your worship music. I don't want your offerings. I don't want you here. I can't stand your church services, your religious assemblies because you're so full of injustice. You're so full of unrighteousness. Address that first. So I want to look at what justice and righteousness are, particularly from the Old Testament. I owe a lot of this to Tim Keller's book, Generous Justice. It's a good book. I'd recommend it. Uh, But beginning with the word justice, which is the uh, Hebrew word mishpat, justice is treating people equitably, giving people what they are due without bias or partiality. Treating people with justice means no partiality, no bias. Doesn't matter their skin color, doesn't matter their gender, doesn't matter their age. You treat people without partiality. You treat people equally and fairly. A lot of justice is in reference to the courts in the Old Testament. He often has an issue with Israel and their courts and how people are getting bribed by the rich. And so the rich get off and the poor get punished. 
Often it has to do with business practices as well. In the Old Testament, it'll go after the business owners who have unjust you know, scales, pay unjust wages, are not treating people equitably and fairly. There's two types of justice mania, retributive justice and restorative justice. Retributive justice is, again, it's acquitting or punishing on the merits of the case. For example, Leviticus 19.15, do not pervert justice, do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Again, he's saying don't show favoritism to the poor or the rich. You treat people fairly, equitably. Justice is to be blind, in other words. You treat people fairly no matter who they are, what their background is. But there's another element of justice, not just the retributive justice of when someone's done something wrong, you punish them and give them what they're due, but also restorative justice, the justice that establishes the rights of people who are downtrodden and oppressed, that God is particularly concerned about those who do not have social standing. Think of what Psalm 68, which we read in the opening, says about God. Sing to God, sing praise to his name, extol him who rides on the clouds. His name is the Lord and rejoice before him. A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows is God in his holy dwelling. Look at how God defines himself there, how he over and over throughout the Bible identifies with the poor, the oppressed, the fatherless, the widow, the immigrant, the orphan, all of these. This is who he identifies with. There's four main classes of people that show up all the time when the Bible talks about justice. Widows, orphans, immigrants, and the poor. Those who in Israel's day did not have social power. And he asked his people to look out for the vulnerable, to care for those who did not have social power, did not have social standing, those who were disenfranchised. He asked his people to care for and lift them up. Today, you could expand that list. Maybe you think of refugees, migrant workers, the homeless, many single parents, many elderly people, those who don't have much social standing, to whom God calls his people to go and care and lift up. And as far as God is concerned, to neglect to care for those people is a violation of justice. It's injustice. Micah 6, 8 is a formative verse when it comes to this. It says, he has showed you, O man, what is good, What does the Lord require of you to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God, to do acts of justice in a spirit of mercy and humbleness? That's God's heart. Again, what would cause God to say, just shut the music off and stop worshiping and stop bringing offerings? When he looks around and says, what's more important to me than the songs that you sing is that you are doing this, that you are a community that seeks justice, that cares for the oppressed and the vulnerable. That is music to my ear, so to speak. Isaiah 58, verses 3 to 11. Some of you are familiar. There was a ministry that we served with and supported for many years called Isaiah 58 that got its name from this passage that went out and served on the streets of New Britain, the homeless and the hungry. Listen to what he says here about fasting. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? This is Israel complaining to God. Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Now God's response, yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fasting I have chosen 
only a day for a man to humble himself? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying on sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe him and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. If you do away with the yoke of the oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. Again, notice what he's saying. It's not about going without food for a day. Fasting is an attitude of the heart that says, I am willing to go without in order to make sure that others have food, clothing, shelter. That's the heart of fasting, he says, about being willing to disadvantage myself and go without so that others might have. That is a just society, one that treats groups equitably. That's what a just church is, one that is willing to make sacrifices for the good of others. That's what a just follower of God does. Willing to share what they have with those who do not. Now again, I recognize as I'm saying all this, this is so much easier said than done, right? We know that. People can be poor or without for many different reasons, some because of natural disasters that have left them without food or shelter, some because of unjust social systems that have oppressed them or worked against them, and some because of moral failure, because of the choices they've made that have put them in that predicament. And sometimes it's a combination of all three and trying to figure out as a church or as an individual, how do I help this person is very difficult. But the call is to figure out how to help, to as a church look to see how we can lift up those who are beaten down, those who are vulnerable, those who are oppressed. That's justice, to treat people equitably. And righteousness is very much connected to justice. Righteousness is the word tzedakah. And in the Old Testament, it's mainly about having right relationships with God and other people. Relationships marked by treating others with fairness and generosity as fellow image bearers of God. It's always stuck with me when I learned this word in my first Hebrew class. He said, when you hear the word righteousness, thinking of it, think of it as right relatedness, which has always helped. Because sometimes you hear righteousness and you think it's moral righteousness, like I'm, I'm righteous means I'm morally good or perfect. But righteousness, biblically speaking, is so much more about relationships, being in right relationship with God, being in right relationship with others. That's righteousness. Righting wrongs. Being generous towards those who are in need. Think of Job. Job was an individual considered righteous, right, in his day. Job chapter 31, this is how he describes righteousness. He says this, If I have denied the desires of the poor or let the eyes of the widow grow weary, 
If I have kept my bread to myself, not sharing it with the fatherless, but from my youth I reared him as I would a father, and from my birth I guided the widow. If I have seen anyone perishing for lack of clothing or a needy man without a garment, and his heart did not bless me for warming him with the fleece from my sheep, if I have raised my hand against the fatherless, knowing that I had influence in court, then let my arm fall from the shoulder, let it be broken off at the joint. It's like that's what it means to be righteous, looking for those who are without and making sure that I'm doing what's in my power to care for them, to lift them up, to protect them. The righteous are those who are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage others, to care for the community. I mean, look back at the Old Testament, and I'm just going to throw a few things out there that just show God's heart for righteousness for his people, for that his people would care for each other. Think of his provision of manna in the wilderness, that when they were in the wilderness, God said he was going to rain down bread from heaven. And what were the rules? Just gather enough for yourself. Don't store it up or hoard it. What's going to happen if you hoard too much? It's going to rot. Make sure you only gather what you need and leave enough for others. Think of the law of gleaning. Ever heard of the law of gleaning in Deuteronomy 24? It said, when you're harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat the olives from your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. That is why I command you to do this. said, if you own land, basically, don't try to pick every single last crop, but leave some there so that those who can't provide for themselves can go and provide for themselves and gather for themselves. It's an ingenious way of saying it's not just to be handouts, but it's not just to be you hoarding for yourself. It's leave some so that they can get some for themselves. Think of tithing. You know, part of the, the rule back then was to tithe, to give to the, to the temple, to the storehouse, to the tabernacle. And every third year, the tithes were put in the t- public storehouses to share with the poor, the alien, the fatherless, the widows. Part of the reason they were supposed to give was to make sure the vulnerable among them were cared for. That's why as a church, we have a benevolent fund so that those in our church can be cared for when there's needs. Deuteronomy 15, think of that one, where he says, at the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. What? Imagine if our culture worked that way. This is how it is to be done. Every creditor shall cancel the loan he has made to his fellow Israelite. He shall not require payment from his fellow Israelite or brother, because the Lord's time for canceling debts has been proclaimed. You may require payment from a foreigner, but you must cancel any debt your brother owes you. However, there should be no poor among you, For in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you. If you obey fully the Lord your God and are careful to follow all these commands I am giving you today. Talk about a high bar that he's setting there. He's saying, okay, in your nation of Israel here, there should be no poor. If you follow my laws, nobody should be poor. If anyone falls into debt every seven years, cancel those debts. Lift them up. Care for them. That's the way it is to be, he says, with my people. Ever hear of the year of Jubilee? Every 49th year, every seven sevens of years, debts were to be forgiven, slaves were to be freed, and land was to be returned to the families who lost land. It was kind of this great reset. Every 50 years it was supposed to be. Or every 49th year. 
Leviticus 25, 10 through 13, Consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Each one of you is to return to his family property and each to his own clan. The 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. Do not sow and do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the untended vines, for it is a jubilee. It is to be holy for you. Eat only what is taken directly from the fields. In this year of jubilee, everyone is to return to his own property. Okay, so we're no longer in a theocracy. I understand that. So this is all given to Israel when it was a theocracy, when God was in charge. He said, this is the way the community is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a just society. There should be no poor among you. Everyone looks out for everyone else. If anyone falls into debt every seven years, you cancel it. If anyone loses their land every 49th year, it returns to their family. Amazing. And we no longer live in a theocracy. We know that. But still, as God's people, as God's church, he says that we are to do justice. We are to treat each other righteously, to care for one another, to look out for each other, especially for the poor, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant. That those who have more than they need would share and care for those who do not have enough. And again, I understand this is complicated as elders We know this is complicated. Trying to figure out when someone has a need, how to best help them in a way that's not a handout, but helps, you know, a hand up, help them out. Sometimes it is just a need of financial needs. Sometimes it's how can we help them find a job, stand on their feet. But the call is to figure it out. The call is, as a church, to do the work, to figure it out. And just think about what a witness it would be to the world. What a witness it would be to your community. If that's the way the church is, if the church was known for being a place where everyone is cared for, where needs are met, where people are generous. This is the way it was in the early church. Emperor Julian, who was the emperor of Rome, 361 to 363 AD, said, Nothing has contributed to the progress of the superstition of the Christians as their charity to strangers. The impious Galileans provide not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. The emperor of Rome recognized This thing, this Christian thing is growing in leaps and bounds because of their love, because of the way they care for themselves and the way they care for even our own poor. Again, my hope, first and foremost, as I said, first of all, we're not lowering the bar here. We're supposed to raise the bar to see that's God's call. It's it's up here. We should feel the weight of it, right? We should feel like, wow, he's really asking me more than I'm doing. I mean, if we walk out of this feeling like, yep, I, you know, I'm, I'm doing great. I'm meeting all of this. Then we're probably missing the boat. That God's call is great. That there be no poor among you. That you would meet the needs. You would treat people fairly. Where people are not being treated with equity, that you would treat them equitably. The, the call is high. But again, as I said last week, we begin with the gospel. That even though the call is high, the standard is high, and none of us meets it, there is forgiveness offered through Jesus Christ. And he gives us his Holy Spirit to empower us to do justice. And we go out to love and show compassion and mercy because he has shown us compassion and mercy. Think of what Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 1. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. 
Some of us feel like we might be able to give Paul a run for his money on that statement where he says, I'm the worst of sinners. But he recognized that God showed me mercy even though I didn't deserve it. And therefore, I can go out and show mercy to those who don't deserve it because that's the way God treated me. I can be compassionate to others in need because God was compassionate to me in my need. Luke 6, 31 to 36, do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you'll be sons of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Again, you can't read this without either saying, you know what, I'm just going to lower the bar so that I feel good, that I can clear it, or just recognizing how high the bar is set, recognizing you fall short, confessing that and asking him to help. There's something about deciding to go out and do justice that helps you to recognize your desperate need for God, right? When you decide, you know what, I want to go help people who are in need, you quickly recognize that you need God's help daily. You need his strength. You need his wisdom. And not only that, you need the help of others. You need the prayer of others. The second you try to go out and do it in your own strength by yourself, you're going to burn out. The call is to do mercy, to be righteous in community, to do it together. And again, we're not going to be able to hit every single need out there and meet and just conquer every single injustice. But as God leads, that's the call on our church to be a place known for justice and righteousness. Begin with the gospel. The call is high. You need grace. You need his forgiveness. You need his Holy Spirit empowering you. And don't go it alone. Let's go together to serve, to do justice. I feel like I've put off this sermon series a long time and part of it is probably because of my own failure in this area that I look in the mirror and I'm like, ah, what am I really doing? You know, what am I doing when it comes to justice? Am I just comfortable? Am I just more concerned about myself, my own family, my own people, turning a blind eye to the needs of the world? Do I really care? Do I really have a heart? It's probably why it's been put off for so long. And coming and doing this is just an admission of God that even though I know I'm failing and falling short, God, it's still your call on me and on our church. So help us figure this out, God. Help us to know what steps to take, where to serve, where to give, who to love, how to reach out. Because the needs are many. It's overwhelming. And thank God there are people out there doing it. Thank God there is organizations like Amira and the Underground that we don't have to reinvent the wheel, but we can join in what they're doing. Pray along with them. Serve along with them. Thank God there's organizations like Hartford City Mission who are getting out there in in Hartford and trying to meet the educational needs of children in the North End so that we can pray with them and serve with them. Thank God there's organizations like Compassion International who are around the world trying to address poverty and injustice that we can give and support and serve with them. Thank God for ministries like Street Church and Hartford and Sparrow Ministries that serve the hungry and homeless that we can go and serve with. 
We don't need to figure it all out ourselves. There are people doing it that we can join in with. But the call is to do justice. Where would God have us serve? Why don't we just spend a couple minutes in prayer together? I'm going to allow you, just give you a minute in silence together, and then I'll, I'll lead us in prayer. And just to seek the Lord. It's not just going to be today. As I continue in this sermon series, how would the Lord lead us to do justice? God, we confess to you this morning that we have failed to do justice in the way you've called your people to do justice. We've failed to be righteous, to be rightly related to you and to others in the way you've called us to. We don't want to make excuses. We don't want to lower the bar. We just want to acknowledge your holy standard, your holy call, your high calling on us and confess to you that we have fallen short. We ask for your forgiveness. We thank you for Jesus, for his death and resurrection that paid the penalty for our sins, for our inability to measure up. But Lord, we don't want to stop there with just receiving forgiveness. We pray, God, that you would empower us by your Holy Spirit to go and to do justice, that you would open our eyes to where it is that you are calling us to serve, who it is you're calling us to love, and how to do it. We need your wisdom. We need your leadership. We need each other, God. We pray, God, that our church would become known for its love, love for each other, love for our community. Give us a heart for justice and righteousness. And give us wisdom on on how to do that, where to serve. We thank you for the men and women who are already out there doing it on the front lines. Encourage them, equip them, empower them, give them everything they need to continue to do the work that you've called them to, Lord. But we want to be a part of this, Lord. And so we pray that you would lead us, please. Help us to get our eyes off ourselves and to put our eyes on you to lift up others above ourselves, to be willing to to make personal sacrifices, Lord, for the good of others, that you might be glorified through our life and through our church. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.